Good morning. My name is Eric. For anybody who I've not had the privilege of meeting, I am on staff here as discipleship and church planning guy. And um, it is a privilege to open the word with you guys this morning. Before we start this new book of 2 Timothy, I just wanted to tell you a couple of things um, related to discipleship, because this book has so much good direct discipleship stuff in it about answering Christ's mandate to go and make disciples of all the nations. First off, we are going to be kicking off this fall, and there's going to be information um, coming out. October 4th is the scheduled date to kick it off, a two-year, six-module training program called Foundations. Um, that's available to anybody in the church that's gone through membership and has, um, is serving in the church. And it's going to be an opportunity to raise up, train, and reproduce leaders within the church. Um, really excited about it. It's going to kick off October. The modules go October to November. We'll have another one in the spring and then another one late spring and then there's a second year that we'll be doing with it. So um, it's going to be all discipleship-focused. It's going to be training-focused. How do we develop the body of Christ to be the priesthood of believers within the church? So just putting that on your radar, excited to talk to you about that. And this morning, as we start Second Timothy, this is also going to be a neat discipleship opportunity. We're including several different people who typically don't get the opportunity to preach on a Sunday over the course of this uh, book over the next um, couple of months. And I want to encourage you, because some of these people, it's going to be like their first or second time. Um, one of the ways that we all help disciple one another is to give honest and helpful feedback to the people who are going to be preaching this summer. Um, something beyond it was good, or you like the way that they presented, or you, you like the funniness of their jokes. I mean, share with them. How did they do in sharing the text and helping you understand the big idea from the scripture that we were looking at? Did they present Jesus as the hero of the narrative? Was the gospel there clearly? And I'm When I'm talking about these other folks that we're going to be training, same applies to me and Steve. We're going to be preaching um, in this book, and I want to be more effective in being able to communicate Christ from the Scriptures and communicate the Gospel. So we're using this as a training time for them, but we'd ask if we could use it as a training time for you to help them be able to understand how to walk through the Bible and teach to a congregation. Sound like a fair uh, ask? We We can do that together. All right, well, with that being said, we're going to start 2 Timothy this morning, so if you want to turn to chapter 1, just a little bit of background about the book, since it is our first week in it. Paul is writing to his disciple, Timothy. He's imprisoned in Rome at the time, and this isn't the imprisonment that you see in the book of Acts. This is a second Roman imprisonment that would have gone past Acts chapter 28, Um, Marcy and I actually had the privilege of visiting this prison years ago while studying like a Bible lands tour. And studying this prison, just being in this prison, gave me just such a profound sense of what Paul is writing about and what he's going to be calling Timothy to. The ceiling is like too short for you to even be able to stand up in. 
um, there's a hole in the top of the ceiling, and that was for food or water to be put down through there. Underneath the, the prison, Rome's called the city on seven hills, right? Um, what happens to, uh, there's a saying about poop going, uh, it doesn't go uphill, right? It goes, um, so he was at the bottom of the seven hills where all of the sewage from Rome would flow right underneath his area where his drinking water would be contaminated by it. It never got more than 55 degrees in this little prison, and all it had was a stone table in it that they say that he probably wrote Second Timothy from. And the person that was leading the tour just led us into this singing of It Is Well With My Soul as we were in this little tiny room and just the reverberation of the sound around the room and keeping in mind that this is Paul the Apostle who is suffering and about to go be beheaded by a madman it just gives these words such a deeper poignancy. He's nearing the end of his life, and he seems to be very aware of it. And that awareness drives a sense of urgency in this letter to his young disciple, Timothy. These are Paul's last words, his final goodbye to Timothy. And if you had a chance to give a final goodbye to somebody that you love dearly, I mean, think about it. I know it's kind of morbid because that means that either you're going to die or they are, but newsflash, that's going to happen eventually. Um, so if, if you had the opportunity to share something really important with somebody that you may not ever see again, what would be the things you want to communicate? You'd probably want to tell them that you love them, right? That would certainly be in there. You'd want to tell them how much you miss them. You'd want to... Pray for them. What would you want to pray? You'd pray that they would finish the race well, that they would remain faithful, that they would remain dependent and clinging to Jesus. You'd remind them of God's faithfulness. Well, that's what Paul's going to do here in our passage today. He's going to recall God's faithfulness, remind God's faithfulness, and then he's going to call Timothy to share. And we have an outline, actually. Um... Well, a reminder to share in that suffering. So I'm going to read verses 1 through 7. If you would stand with me. This is Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, according to the promise of the life that is in Christ Jesus, to Timothy, my beloved child, grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father and from Christ Jesus our Lord. I thank God whom I serve, as did my ancestors with a clear conscience, as I remember you constantly in my prayers, night and day. As I remember your tears, I long to see you, that I may be filled with joy. I am reminded of your sincere faith, a faith that dwelt first in your grandmother Lois and your mother Eunice, and now, I am sure, dwells in you as well. For this reason, I remind you to fan into flame the gift of God which is in you through the laying out of my hands. For God gave us a spirit not of fear, but of power and love and self-control. God, I thank you that you have not given us a spirit of fear. But Lord, we confess that many of us are afraid, Lord. There, there are things that are going on in our lives that seem too big, that, that seem too scary, um, Lord, even just communicating your word in front of a room full of people, these, these things are big and scary were it not for you, Lord. 
So may your spirit fill us, empower us to do your work and your will. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. So let's dig in. It starts off with Paul naming himself. So pretty straightforward. It's something that he does in all 13 of his letters. He begins by naming who he is, and he calls himself an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God. Apostle means somebody that is sent out and sent out in the same way and with the same authority of. So as Paul is sent out, he's being sent out in the authority of Jesus. He's being sent out as a messenger of Jesus. Whatever he says should be taken as if he is speaking from Jesus, especially as he's writing Scripture here, because he says, this is not by my will. This is by the will of God. And then he says something really neat for just being an intro verse after that. According to the promise of the life that it is in Christ Jesus. Um, Randy shared about this really well during the communion time. You know, it's, it's really easy to read things like according to the promise of life and to always have our minds go to according to the promise of heaven, right? When we think of life, we go to eternal life. But that's not where Paul is going here. It, it uses the word the in front of it. He says, according to the promise of the life. This is not about quantity of life. Get this. Though that's there. Paul's talking about a quality of life. Paul is a messenger of life. A present, a rich, a flourishing, what Jesus would call the abundant life. He's come as a messenger of this. And he's saying this life and the eternal aspects there, you know, any of us who have embraced Jesus, we're going to live forever and ever with him in eternity. But this is a life that's available to us now. We don't have to wait until eternity to experience the life that is in Christ Jesus. The words in Christ are the two most profound words in all of Pauline literature. If you ever want to do a really neat study, just get yourself a concordance and go read all of the times that Paul uses the words in Christ throughout the New Testament. But what he's saying is in Christ is where this life is found. Like Randy said, it's not a life. It's the life. And it's only found in Christ. If you really want to embrace this for what it's worth, I would encourage you to pray the prayer of this man, Augustine, that lived back in the fourth century so many years ago. He once prayed this bold prayer before God God, let my heart rest in nothing until it rests in thee. Think about that. Let my heart rest in nothing until it rests in thee. He's saying, in this life, I know you're the only one where true life is found, so let me rest in nothing until I rest in the life that is promised through Christ Jesus that is talked about here. And he writes to Timothy, he calls him my beloved child. It shows you how intensely personal this letter is going to get, which makes sense, right? If you find out that you're about to die, you don't have much longer to talk to somebody that you love. It's going to be personal. It's probably not going to be general. It's probably going to be very specific, the things that you are going to hit on. And Paul loved Timothy. I mean, think about their relationship. It started back in Acts chapter 14, 
And up until now, we see that Timothy was Paul's convert. He was his friend. He was his intern early on. He became his assistant in church planting. Went on to become a co-planter. He was his companion in the most difficult times. He was with him in Romans 1.1 when Paul's writing the book of Romans from also being in prison. And he's still with him now. He's pastoring the church of Ephesus as the faithful warrior in Christ that this man has been. Paul never had any children by birth. I don't know if that fits anybody here. That um, you know, he, he seemed as if he was single up until the end of his life. He didn't have children, but he had so many spiritual children in his family tree. And Paul saw that as really serious and really important and really intimate. Paul looked at Timothy like a true child. That's why he calls him my beloved. He calls him elsewhere, my true child in the faith. Paul had a lot of children in the faith, but none of them meant more to him than Timothy. And then he prays the usual prayer, grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father and from Christ Jesus our Lord. That's the same basic ingredients that Paul prays for, except he includes the word mercy in here, which is... Pretty awesome. If you ever want to pray this prayer for me or any of the people in leadership, I know how badly I'm aware of God's mercy. I mean, we need His mercy every day. So what a beautiful prayer. May you be aware of your need for mercy, Timothy. And then you begin to see Paul's prayer of remembrance. Look at verses 3-5. through He says, I thank God whom I serve as did my ancestors with a clear conscience as I remember you constantly in my prayers night and day. I'm going to stop there. What does Paul pray for here? Again, if you were going to pray for somebody that you may never see again, a child, a disciple, what would you pray for? The answers are further around on the page. You can look at them if you want, but I'm just wanting to quiz your heart. Like, if this was you in this situation and you loved Timothy as your beloved child, what would you pray for in that moment? You you can see what he prays for. He starts off with this prayer of thanksgiving. This is a thank God whom I serve. I mentioned this back when I went through the book of Philemon a few months ago. It's a lot easier to receive hard words from somebody who you know is thankful for you and is giving thanks for you before God. Uh, He's going to get into some difficult things here in this book. And if the only directional flow with somebody in a relationship is them telling you how poor you are at something, how you could do better, how you should do better, how you need to grow, how you could be a better disciple if you just did this, it's a lot more difficult to receive hard words, isn't it? When somebody's like, hey, I'm going to share a tough word with you. And it's one of those people you're like, do you ever share a different kind of word? <laughs> you know, and I'm just going to tell it how it is. I'm just going to give you the truth. Don't you always do that? Because you don't seem to ever put much kindness into the way you deliver things. So Paul regularly prays for and gives thanks for this person. 
If I know that somebody is regularly praying and giving thanks for me and my family, you have a lot of latitude to be able to share a difficult word. I mean, Bob Bunn could come up to me and say just about anything to me after the service. Because you know how he reads me? Hey, I've been praying for you. I've been praying these specific things. I've been praying for this about your family. When somebody says that, aren't you wanting to be more receptive than somebody's like, hey, I like to shoot from the hip. I've got something that just might wound you. Um, (laughs) It makes it so much easier to receive. Paul prays for this man. And when he prays, I want you to get this because it's so important to Pauline writing and it's so easy to skip over this. He says he prays with a clear conscience in the way that his ancestors did. So first off, by ancestors, I don't think that he's talking about his biological family or his pharisaical family. He's talking about the ancestry of the faithful who did the work of the gospel with a clear conscience, who went before Paul, and Paul is saying, I'm a part of this legacy now, that Hebrews 11-type legacy of faith, of all of those who have gone before me. And as he ends Hebrews 11 with, uh, all these having gained approval through their faith did not receive what was promised, for God has provided something better for us that apart from us they would not be made perfect. And now he stands on their shoulders And he's saying, like them, I serve God in this ministry of the gospel with a clear conscience. I'm going to come back to that more in a moment. But first, I want to hit on this idea of conscience, which is massively important to Paul. And one that I don't think that as 21st century Christians, we give the same weight or latitude that Paul did when writing to young disciples. Paul writes three books to young pastors. Can anybody name them? First Timothy. Second Timothy. That was a layup because we're in that one. And what was the other one? Titus. All right. So three books, really intentional, very personal. Two of them written to Timothy. One of them written to Titus. And in all three of these books, Paul hits on this important concept of conscience all within the first chapter. In First Timothy 1.5, I believe I have it, up here. The aim of our charge is love that issues from a pure heart, a good conscience, and a sincere faith. How much could youngs keep themselves out of trouble if they kept in mind that the aim of their instruction, every time you open your mouth and presume to speak for God, the aim of your instruction ought to be a love. Your message should be forged in love. You should be on your knees throughout the week loving God and loving your people as you pray for them and pray that the Spirit would use that and apply it to their lives from love that comes from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. The importance of these young disciples to think through the importance of a clear conscience. Titus 1, 15 and 16 To the pure, all things are pure. But to those who are unbelieving and defiled, nothing is pure. But both their minds and their consciences are defiled. They profess to know God, but they deny Him by their works. They are detestable, disobedient, unfit for any good work. And then he hits on conscience again here when he says, 
I pray for you. I serve with a clear conscience in the way that my ancestors do. Why do you think that Paul puts such an emphasis on conscience? And think about it, right? That's, that's three books to young pastors. And he hits on this issue of conscience right in the beginning. Why is this so important? If you're an older person in this congregation and you have taken seriously Christ's call to make disciples of younger people, do you hit on conscience with the same importance that Paul does? He hits on conscience again in 1 Corinthians chapter 3. It gives him a little bit more if you want to uh, turn there. I don't, I don't think I have a slide for it. You don't have to. I'll read it. It's chapter 4, actually. This is how one should regard us as servants of Christ, stewards of the mysteries of God. Moreover, it's required of stewards that they be found faithful. But for me, it's a very small thing that I should be judged by you or any human court. In fact, I don't even judge myself, for I am not conscious of anything against myself. But I am not thereby acquitted. It's the Lord who judges me. Therefore, do not pronounce judgment before the time, before the Lord comes. He will bring to light the things now hidden in darkness and will disclose the purpose of the heart. Then each one will receive his commendation from God. So in this, he's saying his conscience doesn't acquit him, but it's not accusing him either. But this alone is not enough to make him righteous. His righteousness was established through faith in Christ and by Christ's righteousness. But there's this importance of conscience. If your conscience does not condemn you, it made me wonder... Should the role of conscience be bigger in the way that we disciple our young people? Instead of giving them a bunch of rules about the society's taboos and say, you're in if you follow this rule, you're out if you follow these rules, what if we really taught them to be able to listen to their conscience, to understand their conscience through Scripture being the underpinning of their understanding. And then we taught them it is not safe to violate conscience. Because if we're honest, that's what a lot of the reprogramming that our world is doing. It's saying, hey, if we could just minimize conscience, it's a whole lot easier to violate conscience, isn't it? I think, as I, because I never considered it before until seeing that it was in the first chapter of all three of these and asking myself why, I think that that's part of it. If you teach how to not violate conscience, your conscience is going to be a good indicator in a world where people want to tell you, I'm speaking to you, young group over there especially, that they want to tell you that a lot of what is wrong is right. And if they can get your conscience to believe it, then you're going to believe it and you're going to listen. So a good way to view conscience, I have a quote from you by this guy named Martin Luther, who was asked to violate Scripture. And uh, he said, unless I'm convicted by Scripture and plain reason, I do not accept the authority of popes and councils, for they've contradicted each other. My conscience is captive to the Word of God. 
I cannot, and I will not recant anything, for I cannot go it against conscience is neither right nor safe. Here I stand. I cannot do otherwise. God help me. He's saying when he understood Scripture and his conscience is captive to Scripture, to violate conscience is unsafe. So I would like to ask you, would you say that you serve God with clear conscience? Any of you. I mean, you don't need to answer, but I'm asking you to ask your own heart. I I had a really good pastoral theology professor when I was in Bible college, and I remember him asking, how many of you would take over a church and tell the people, you need to follow me the way that I follow Jesus? And we're all like, I'm not prideful. I wouldn't say that, right? Um, How many of you would say that you serve God with a clear conscience? Well, trick question. I'm not going to say yes to that either. And then he took us to these scriptures. And he said, well, I'd encourage you to maybe stay out of the pulpit then until you can say that you do serve God with a clear conscience. And if you can't say that today, I would say that that's where the gift of repentance comes in. If your conscience is telling you, no, I, I don't have a clear conscience before him today, God's kindness leads us to repentance, according to Romans And then after the thanksgiving and the statement of conscience, it becomes this prayer of remembrance. And this idea of remembrance is the key to the rest of our passage. He uses this term remember four times in the next three verses. So what is it that Paul's remembering? He's saying, as I remember your tears, I long to see you that I may be filled with joy. Also, I'm reminded of your sincere faith, the faith that dwelt in your grandmother Lois and your mother Eunice and now dwells in you. So he was constantly remembering Timothy with a spirit of thanksgiving. He remembers Timothy's tears from the last time that they saw each other and they departed. If you look at Acts chapter 20 when Paul is saying farewell to the Ephesian elders, the one thing he says that leads them all to tears is that they would not see his face again. And and Paul recalls these kinds of tears. And then he remembers Timothy's faith and the faith of his mother and his grandmother. And and this is so beautiful. Just like Paul served a clear conscience the way that his spiritual ancestors did, he's calling Timothy to serve in that way because they are a part of Eunice's and Lois's legacy, just like Paul was a part of the faithful legacy that preached the gospel before him. And he's saying now, their faithfulness, I'm confident that that dwells in you. Timothy, they're passing on their legacy to you and through you. And if you take verses 3-5 through together, Paul is reminded that he is a part of a huge spiritual heritage. And Timothy is part of that heritage because of Lois and Eunice. Young people, Hear me on this. If you're here, it's because you are a part of a legacy. You're a part of a heritage. You're a part of people who are looking to grow you up and see you grow in the faith. Paul reminds Timothy of that. And he's saying this should be something that is an anchor to your soul that fans into flame the work of God in your life. Don't disregard the power of a godly upbringing. Now Paul who is well acquainted with his impending death, is saying, Timothy, my true child, and the child of these two great sisters, the time has come, and now you're called to lead 
with a gospel legacy. That's a beautiful and sober thing to be reminded of. One day, all of the old farts in this church are going to take an eternal... They're going, they're going to take their dirt nap. You know, they're going, to, they're going to be gone. And it's going to be up to you, young people, to carry on the gospel legacy. It's a beautiful and sober reminder. And after all of this remembering, Paul's going to call Timothy to action by remembering some things. Look at verses 6 and 7. He says, For this reason I remind you to fan the flame the gift of God, which is in you through the laying on of my hands. For God gave us a spirit not of fear, but of power and love and self-control. So for this reason, I remind you. What reason? If he's going to say for this reason, because of the sincerity of your faith and the rich gospel heritage that you're a part of, Paul prefaces all of this so tenderly and so carefully. It's the kind of thing where you know if somebody's prefacing something so much, they're about to give you a punch in the gut, right? Nobody comes to you and is like, hey, I want to remind you of this, affirm you in this. You know that what they're doing is putting an iron fist in a vessel so that it takes a little bit of the uh, edge off of it. So something's going to be coming here. And Paul's reminder, I'm going to break it down into three sections. Fan into flame the gift of God which is in you through the laying on of my hands. So fan into flame is a really interesting Greek word. It's not used anywhere else in the New Testament. It's a combination of more common words. But I like the imagery here, fan into flame. Does anybody have a New American Standard? What does it say? Kindle afresh. Yeah, the, the actual Greek word is um, kindle afresh, stoke the embers of. And he's reminding him, you need to put some fresh kindling on this fire, Timothy. We're starting to see the embers start to dwindle. We need to put some fresh kindling to take those embers and put it back into a flame. And What is he asking to send back into a flame? This gift of God. The phrase isn't given much definition by its immediate context. So let's reach back into another passage where Paul said something similar. Um, can you pull up the uh, 1 Timothy 1? Command and teach these things. Let no one despise you for your youth, but set the believers as an example in speech and conduct and love and faith and purity. Until I come, devote yourself to the public reading of Scripture or towards exhortation, towards teaching. Do not neglect the gift you have. Here's that same language, which was given to you by prophecy when the council of elders laid their hands on you. Practice these things. Immerse yourself in them so that all may see your progress. Keep a close watch on yourself and on the teaching. Persist in this, for by doing so, you will save both yourself and your hero, your hearers. So Steve and I have had some really wonderful conversations about what this gift of God is. Some commentators say that it's the Holy Spirit. Um, some commentators would say that it's um, being ordained. Um, some would say that it's some type of gift of prophetic teaching and leadership. And I think the conclusion we came to was yes, right? When we looked at all of those options. So um, I'll explain that after we talk about the laying on of hands. Because I feel like I just want to correct anybody that may have had some bad theology on this. When Marcy and I, my wife, um, when we met, we met at a Bible study um, where they looked at 
these kinds of verses if Paul, as if Paul was a wizard. And I've, I've seen that that's not all that uncommon. Like, when he would lay hands on you, it was like something that you would see out of Hogwarts, right? Like, and then you, and um, I remember being in these environments where people would, like, lay hands on me and do that street fighter thing. They're like, how do you get, and then I, nothing would happen to me, right? And I'd be like, I'm broken. Like, does it not work when people lay their hands on, on me? Um, He's not saying that he's a wizard. He didn't. Nothing magical happened when he when he laid hands on him. Um, similarly, Paul didn't give Timothy the Holy Spirit. What he did do is he vouched for Timothy when he laid hands on him in front of the congregation. In the same way that Barnabas has done for Paul, and the way that so many have done for others, Paul laid hands on him as a sign, as just as I was your leader when I planted this church here in Ephesus. Now Timothy is your pastor. It was a big deal when Paul, the apostle, sets out to go planting other churches, that he set in motion somebody to be able to lead with the same authority that he was able to lead with. And Paul's reminding him, I laid hands on you because of the Holy Spirit's work in your life. And we recognize the Holy Spirit's work in your life. And we affirm that through the laying on of hands. And then, unless you've been there, you have no idea how encouraging it is for somebody to remind you of such things when you're stepping into a difficult job. Hey, Timothy, you're still the guy for the job. Remember when we laid hands on you and we recognized the Spirit's work in your life? We still see that even today. And I'm going to use some ink here from prison to remind you of that because it's so important. So I think the other components really are a part of it. Paul recognized how the Holy Spirit set Timothy apart, which was a public extension of what the Holy Spirit was already doing in his heart. And Paul recognized this work by the laying on of hands, which is a sign of trust and agreement of his sentness. So let's put all those parts together, and you have fan into flame, Timothy, this gift for leading the Ephesian church that was validated when we laid hands on you in front of the congregation. So That sounds great. How do you fan into flame then? Because that's another one where I just want to... It's not wizardry. It's not having the hype man. It's not saying like, man, your teaching this morning is a little bit more subdued than other weeks you taught. You know, what if we went and got you a couple Red Bulls and we got like a lot more excited? That's not what it means by, by fan into flame. If you look at it based on the context, the only guess that I could have is the four usage of the word remembrance has a lot to do with what it means to fan into flame. And if you were to take that and look at 1 Peter 1.13 or 1 Peter 3.1, which I won't do for the sake of time, where he says, fan into flame by way of remembrance in both of those passages. Um, remembering has some sort of effect. Take what you've seen God do. Take what you know God has done. Take the faithful legacy that you are from. Remember this, Timothy, and fan into flame. You, Creekside, remember the same things. Who you are in Christ. What God has done in this church for the last 20 years. We're celebrating 20 years of faithfulness. Did you know that the average church plant in America this year closes their doors by year five? 
I mean, it's 20 years of faithfulness. God's like 400% more faithful to you than anyone else. That's something... That's heretical. Don't repeat, don't repeat that. Um, celebrate. Yeah, make, record the second sermon this week. Um, and then he goes on to tell him the reason for remembering this. It's because God hasn't given us a spirit of fear, Timothy. And I really don't like the term fear that's used here in the ESB. It's not the common biblical term that's translated fear. Um, what does it say in the New American Standard? Timidity. Yeah, I, don't get confused. I don't like the New American Standard, but it's, um, no, it, it's good. <laughs> I'm just playing. Um, but they really did translate this passage a lot better. In, in Greek literature, this term is always translated as cowardness or timidness, um, the cowardly feelings that cause us to shrink back from the face of danger. These are not from God, is what Paul's telling Timothy. I want to clear up a quick misconception about Timothy. Because Timothy and timid sound a lot alike, people have called him timid Timothy, and that's just nonsense. Like, this guy is a warrior. Just because you ask somebody to not be afraid doesn't mean that they are afraid. Have you ever had to step into something that was so difficult that you knew that it was beyond you, and without God being in it, you would fall on your face? Wouldn't it be encouraging for somebody to say, hey, don't be afraid. (laughs) Don't be timid in the face of this. For God is with you. So being asked to not be timid doesn't mean that he was. Are we in agreement on that? Because this guy is is a warrior, and we shouldn't be um, painting him as if he's like sitting around afraid. Um, We're called to have a resiliency and a relentlessness as heralds of the gospel. That's what he's saying of them. Be resilient, Timothy. Be relentless, Timothy. You don't get to tap out, Timothy. The job's not done, Timothy. You haven't hit the finish line yet, Timothy. He's not giving you that spirit of fear that wants to quit. What kind of spirit has he given us? One of power. This is the Greek term dunamis that we know from Romans chapter 1 when it talks about the power of the gospel unto salvation. That's the same word that's used to describe the power of the gospel. And here it's saying that God has given you that power as a herald of the gospel, Timothy. That's a reason why you don't need to be timid. He's given us a spirit of love. This is the Greek word agape. And in this world today, we are taught that love and tolerance are synonyms. This couldn't be further from the truth. Love in this setting means a willingness to address and call out the difficult things that have the ability to undermine the gospel and undermine the purity of the church. That's what love is. Sometimes love means that we don't tolerate things. Sometimes tolerance isn't love, it's just pretty freaking lazy. And sometimes love needs to be reminded that it's the opposite of timidity. You don't need to be reminded to go love in some Nancy Pants kind of tolerant way. But when love is requiring you to have some gumption to it, you might need to be, doesn't mean just blindly accepting everything, because hey, love. And then self-control being the last. And it's not my favorite translation, because self-control usually stirs up in the mind abstaining from sinful things for the sake of morality. And that's good, right? I mean, I'm not telling you to not do that. 
<clears throat> but here, it's much more of a soundness of mind. It's saying, instead of fear, have a soundness of mind that rests on who God is, God's love, God's power. And you put it all together. Remember where you came from, Timothy. Don't shrink back from using your gifts in this middle of this hard, pluralistic society because God's love didn't give you a timid spirit, Timothy. He's filled you with power. He's filled you with love. And he's given you a sound mind to be an effective missionary where he's called you to. And in verse 8, that's going to be the next week's preacher. But he tells you why he's fanning into flame this remembrance. Therefore, do not be ashamed of me and the testimony about our Lord, nor of me, his prisoner, but share in suffering for the gospel by the power of God. Brothers and sisters, it takes a spirit of love, of power, of sound-mindedness to be able to joyfully embrace suffering as the way of the cross so that the life of Jesus might be manifested in us. And the good news of this passage is God's already equipped you with it. So I'm going to ask the musicians to come up and just give you a couple of questions by way of application. Um, I would remind you of the power of a clean conscience. It is so much easier to not be timid if your conscience is clean. Talk to anybody who's had a season of being stuck in deceptive sin and their hiding of it and how much their evangelism goes down, how much their ability to love others goes down, how much their boldness goes down. It's hard to be bold when you have an unclear conscience. Stir up others by way of reminder. This church has been around for 20 years. Maybe go and tell somebody, hey, remember how awesome I thought you were like 15 years ago? You've only gotten better with age. And I'd like to stir you up by way of reminder of the sweetness that I've seen God do in and through your life. Stir up the gifts that God has placed within you. Don't let the wickedness of this world or the, oh, why bother feeling cause you to take something that God deposited in you and let it lay dormant because he put it there for his glory. And God knows that this world is wicked. He knows how hard it is, but he's gifted you to be a light in the midst of it. So I'm going to pray and send it over to the worship team here. Um, God, thank you that you have not given us a spirit of timidity, but you have given us power by your spirit. You've given us love to the cross. You've given us sound mind that we do not need to... For my benediction, I would like to read from Matthew 11. As if you're here struggling with fear or timidity, um, I know that something that could be really unhelpful is somebody just saying, hey, stop being afraid. Stop it. Stop it. <laughs> Have you stopped it yet? Um, so I want to remind you that you, you can come unto Jesus with all of these things. It says, all things have been given into over to me by the Father, and no one knows the Son except the Father, and no one knows the Father except the Son, and anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, 
and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. I remind you, if you are struggling with fear or timidity, you can come to Jesus. He'll give rest to your soul. Um, one way that you could come to Jesus is there's going to be people up here to pray with after the service. If any of you would like to pray, they would love to. Um, I'm going to pray for you. Jesus, I pray that you would teach us to come to you when we feel heavy and burdened and heavy laden. And thank you that in your goodness and your kindness, you give rest to the weary souls of weary sinners. And you call us your children. In Jesus' name, amen. See you next week, Creekside.